we are on week six of our Biblical Theology of Grief uh, Sunday School course. Uh, this morning, if you have a handout, you'll see on your handout, this morning we're looking at Grief Enlightened, Glorifying God in Grief. So let's begin with the word of prayer. Father, thank you for your loving kindness towards us. Lord, in every season of life, and in the dark seasons, and in the valleys that we go through, God, that you are there. You're a God who is near, and you're a God who cares. God, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. And God, we thank you that you're a God of glory. And Father, as we come and gather here this morning, we pray that you would settle our hearts and minds to be able to study your word together that you would impart truth to our lives and that your Holy Spirit would empower it in us to live out for your namesake. God, that we pray for one another this morning, for those this morning who are suffering, for those who are in pain, for those who weep. God, we thank you that you are a God of compassion we pray that they would know your compassion and that we too would have compassion one for another. We pray in the midst of all that they're going, on, that going through, that their strength would be in Christ. That their hearts would be steadfast in seeking after him. We pray, God, that you would be glorified in this time that we have together. In Jesus' name. If you would look at your handouts this morning, you'll see that there are three different areas that we're looking at when we talk about God's glory. God's glory in himself, God's glory in us, and God's glory in our grief. Probably more important this morning is to unpack exactly what is God's glory. We speak of it often. We speak of the glory of God. And perhaps don't have the best understanding or the best definition of what is God's glory. So God's glory is both intrinsic, it is internal, and it's extrinsic, which means it is external. There's an internal glory and an external glory. God's internal glory is his majesty. It is his worth. It's his beauty. It's his splendor. It's the combination of all of God's attributes together that is God's glory, his internal glory. So what is his external glory? His external glory is the way he reveals his glory through creation. It's the way he reveals his glory through his image bearers. It is the way he reveals his glory through his providence and it's the way that he reveals his glory through his redemptive acts. That we might know the glory of God. And this is all the glory that he has in himself. It, it cannot be added to because it is complete. It's all in him. We, we regularly reference Psalm 19.1 about the heavens. And what do the heavens declare? The glory of God. The skies declare his handiwork. 
Now, just stopping for a moment when we speak of that, that the heavens declare the glory of God. I don't know how many of you had opportunity to, to look at recent photos that came out on the internet from the Webb telescope. If that is something unfamiliar to you, I would encourage you, and I don't often tell you, go surf the internet, but search Webb telescope images. And what you will see is that the heavens declare the glory of God. What you see is the handiwork of our God. Web telescope images, images that we have never seen before, and how anybody can say there is no God, well, clearly the Bible defined them as a fool. A verse that we all should stand firm upon to understand God's glory is Romans 11.36. And I want you to open, it's just a simple verse, you might know it by heart, but if you'd open your Bibles to Romans 11.36. I believe it's on the front cover of our church bulletin as well. Romans 11.36. We read, For from him, and through him, and to him, are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Well, what does that mean? I mean, this we have God's glory all together here, that God is the creator of all things. Everything is from him. He's the creator of everything. But he's also the sustainer of everything. Everything is through him but he's also the goal of all things, that everything is for him or to him. This is our God, and as we look at the glory of God, we need to understand that he is over all things, in all things, and to all things are for him and for his namesake. And so interestingly enough, Isaiah gets a vision of heaven, and as he's caught up in this vision, he sees these seraphim. And I don't know if you recall what these seraphim were saying to one another, but in Isaiah chapter 6, these seraphim call out to one another. And we read in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, this is what they say. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's all about him. And I think that helps center us a little bit, especially as we talk about going through seasons of grief, because it helps put us back, our compass back on center of, it's about God. And it's about his glory. Because in seasons of grief, we quickly, naturally, because of our fallen nature, immediately dwell on ourselves. And so when we look at God's glory it brings us right back to dead center that it is all about him. Like what one commentator, how he states the intrinsic glory of God, he writes this, the first concept of the glory of God is the glory that's intrinsic to his nature. We don't give this to him. It's his by virtue of who he is. If no man was ever created, if no angel was ever created, would God still be a God of glory? Yes. 
if no one ever gave him any glory, if no one ever gave him any honor, if no one ever gave him any praise, would he still be a glorious God that he is? Yes, because he was before anybody ever did. Glory is simply the manifestation of all his attributes. God's glory is the combination of all his attributes, end quote. I want you to keep that in mind, that he already has all the glory. That means it's not dependent upon us that somehow we're to give him some type of glory that he doesn't have, that he already has glory. Some of you might remember Moses asked God something. He said, please show me your glory. Let's take a look at that. It's in Exodus chapter 33, if you would turn there with me this morning. It's interesting, the response of God after Moses asked him to show him his glory. This is in Exodus chapter 33. We'll start in verse 17. Exodus 33, starting in verse 17. We read, And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Verse 19, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Stop there real quick. What did Moses ask for? Show me your glory. How did God respond? I will show you all my goodness that will pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by. Now, wait a minute. Verse 22 says, my glory passes by. But what did he say up in verse 19? Goodness. There's the connection. The goodness of God, all of his attributes of who he is. He says, while my glory passes by, verse 22, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. When we speak of the glory of God, we speak of the goodness of God. It, it is complete. It is full. It is who he is. And guess what? It's never ending and it's never changing. Which means even when we go through times that are difficult, the goodness of God never changes. The glory of God is always the same. And it's interesting, as Moses gets a, a glimpse of this goodness, many years go by, and then we have the Lord Jesus who takes on human flesh and comes to earth that we might see in human flesh the glory of God. We know in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh and it dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and and truth. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on that in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, speaking of Christ. He said, he is the radiance of the glory of God. 
and the exact imprint of his nature. So to begin with, as we speak of what does it mean to, to bring God glory or to give God glory or to glorify God in our grief, first we simply need to understand what is God's glory. It is complete. It is in himself. And so that, that begs the question then, how then would we give God glory? If it's complete already, if it's all in him, then what does it mean to give God glory? So point number two on your handout, God's glory in us. We've spoken about this in previous weeks, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one. I'm sure many of you know it. What is the chief end of man? And what is that answer? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Okay, if that's the chief end of man, what exactly does that mean? What does it mean to glorify God? What does it mean to the, the one being, the only uncreated one who has all glory in himself already, what does it mean to glorify him and to enjoy him forever? Because there isn't anything that we can do to give him glory in the sense of his intrinsic nature. It's complete. It's full. We can't add to the nature of God. So when we are spoken of in Scripture to give him glory, we're not adding anything to his nature. We're simply revealing who he is. Revealing his attributes, his glory, his personhood, we're publicly giving a testimony to his glory. And so we see in Scripture, in First Chronicles, I'll read it to you, chapter 16, verses 28 and 29, we read, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Ascribe to him, to come to him, the one who is glory, the one who is full of all this goodness, to come and bring praise and worship to him. We see almost the same exact words in, in Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. And so both times we hear this connection about holiness and worship. That the worship that is unto him is a worship of holiness. Why? Because it reflects who he is. It is a testimony of his glory that God's people are then called to walk in holiness to reflect who he is. Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That you might what? Proclaim the excellencies, the goodness of God, the glory of God. We recently completed our study through 
Well, I shouldn't say we completed because we can study it over and over and over again, and it will continue to reveal more and more and more truth to us. But as a church, we completed a study through Ephesians. And we learned at the very beginning of that letter that even our very salvation is for the praise of his glory. You ever ask, why would God choose me? Why, why would he save me? Oh, wretched man that I am, why would Christ save me? For the praise of his glory. We read in Ephesians 1, 6, 1, 12, 1, 14, that it's to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. Over and over and over again, we hear it's about his glory. And so we are commanded to do good works for the glory of of God, not for our own glory, not that people will look to us and say, oh, look how great and wonderful you are, but that they might know God and give him glory. And so Jesus would say this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. He says, let your light shine before others so they might see your good works. And what would happen when they see your good works, church? They would give glory to your father who is in heaven. That they would see in you a reflection of God. That by our actions, we were revealing his very nature. That's what that means. It's not about, oh, look at me. Look what I have done. Look what I overcame. And look how I was able to serve. It is about, I have been saved for the glory of God. I have been saved for the praise of his glory. And because of that, as his spirit works through us, he receives all that praise and honor and worship. So we spoke of this intrinsic nature of, of God's glory, but we also see this word glory in Scripture, that we're to give glory. But we've already defined it. We can't add more glory to God. So what does it mean to give glory? This word glory here is defined this way. It means praise. It means honor. It, it's to extol. It, it means to clothe in splendor. It's to give glory is really worship. To worship him. And that's why we read verses like 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the, good job, all for the glory of God. What does that mean? That my life is lived out in a manner of worship unto him. That it points to him constantly. That when others would look to us, they would see Christ that he would receive all the honor and the glory. We read a similar earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul goes through just talking about the way we would use our body and how it should be used not for immorality or for unrighteousness, but for righteousness. And he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. It means God has rescued us. He has redeemed us. He has forgiven us. He has sealed us with his spirit. Why? to the praise of his glorious grace, that he might receive honor and glory. Jesus would put it this way in John 15, verse 8. He says, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove that you are my disciples. You know, that's interesting. 
because the gospel has been watered down and become so palatable that it's simply, everybody close your eyes, just raise your hand if you want Jesus, and if you raise your hand, now you're saved eternally and it's all good. That actually happens in churches. Or it's just repeat this prayer, and if you just repeat this prayer, then everything's fine. But here's what scripture testifies to, that true salvation, God takes us from darkness and makes us light. Why the transformation? To the praise of his glory. He takes us from being dead and gives us life. Why? For his glory. That there should be transformation. So Jesus would testify that if you are saved, there's evidence of that. It's not the other way around. It's not I go strive and try to do good works to try to earn God's favor. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. But there's evidence of genuine conversion. And that is a humbling thing, that this Christian life is no longer about us. It's about Christ. The life that we had before Christ, the life that was about the, the selfish trinity, the me, myself, and I, that was all about us. But the redeemed life is about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's about him. In Psalm 115.1, we read, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. It's about his name. All that we would do to to worship him, to serve one another. Even the command for us to weep with one another. Yes, that brings comfort one to another, but ultimately, it's for the glory of God. Some of you are familiar with one of John Piper's famous sayings that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Remember, he is glory. It's complete. And when we're satisfied in his goodness is when he's most glorified in us. And when we're most satisfied in his goodness, guess what we are chasing after most? Him. Because he is good. And so let's, let's take this idea of God has this intrinsic glory. We can't add any glory to it. But we are commanded to give glory, to give praise, to give honor, to worship. And, and what does that look like then in our grief? What does glorifying God in our grief look like? For those of you that have gone through great tragedies and immediately something happens and you know that your heart feels like it's put into a blender. Your mind feels like a tornado has whipped through your head and it's just spinning all around. And you can't make sense of anything. So how do you give God glory in the midst of grief? I will give you a hint, and that here's the beauty of it. What I'm about to tell you is what God gives to us anyway. That God wants to receive honor and glory from us, so he gives us what we need to do that. And it's one word called faith. How do we glorify God in our grief? faith, by trusting in God, even though nothing around us makes sense, even though we can't see what tomorrow holds or how we're going to come through this, faith. 
It's the very thing that he gave to us. And he gave to us that he would be honored and glorified and worshiped and that his glory would be on display. That as his people go through suffering, they cling to faith. And so I want to use Abraham as an example this morning. Romans chapter 4. If you would turn there this morning, Romans 4. As you turn there, you know that Abraham was given a promise. His offspring would be many. There was only one problem with his offspring being many. I mean, offspring, I promise so much of like the, the sand of the, of the shore of, you go down to the beach, see all the sand? Like, that's a lot. What was the problem in Abraham's life? His wife was barren. And I heard another problem. <laughs> he was old. <laughs> There's a combination of problems. <laughs> So old that I like the way our text puts it. He is at an age now where he would consider his body dead. And I think there's a euphemism there of he's at an age where it just doesn't make sense of what God has promised. And so let's read it together in Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 18. We read this. In hope, speaking of Abraham, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Look at verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. Stop there. There's one problem. His body's at a point where he's thinking this can't happen anymore. This is not going to take place. And it's good our kids are in Sunday school today so we can speak a little more freely. Um, but he's just thinking this, this doesn't make sense. This promise of God does not make sense at this point in my life. And then he goes on, and of course we read, or when he considered the barrenness of Saren's womb. There's a problem on both sides. This equation doesn't work out. It absolutely does not make sense. But look at verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Stop there. Say, well, th this is not about necessarily a type of grief that we go through, although he's given a promise. And he doesn't see that promise being fulfilled. And so though we might not equate it to grief, it surely was a type of grief that he had to endure. And yet when we go through our times of sorrow, God has also promised us things. Christ has promised us that he would never leave us nor forsake us. He has promised that we will not be tempted beyond what we're able to endure. That he will provide the way of escape. That even in those moments where we think, I'm just at wit's end and I'm just going to explode or whatever else or chase after whatever this world has that I think is going to comfort me, that God is able to help us to endure. That he'll even provide the way of escape. And so what Romans, as it goes through, what is attributed to Abraham 
was faith. It was belief. It was trusting. Trusting God. I want you to think if you've gone through the type of grief that I speak of where you feel like your heart's in a blender and a tornado's buzzing through your brain at the time and you can't think straight and you can't feel straight. What brings God glory? Trusting him in the midst of it. I want you to think about this. Nothing else at that moment makes any sense anyway. Nothing else makes sense. But what does is God. That we know he is still God in the midst of that. That in the middle of all that pain, and in the middle of all that suffering, we still know that he is God. I think it's week nine that we're going to look at God's sustaining grace in grief, which these go hand in hand. I separated them intentionally, but God sustains us through it. He gives us the faith to continue to endure, and that is what brings him glory. Flip over to 1 Peter for me. 1 Peter chapter 1. Another passage we're probably very familiar with. 1 Peter chapter 1. As Peter opens up this letter, starting in verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Stop there for a second. Do you know what Peter just did? He preached the gospel. Peter just began by preaching the gospel. Church, he is not writing to unbelievers here. He's writing to believers. And he's not just writing to any believer, but he's writing to believers who are going through suffering. And the first thing he starts off with is the gospel. Remember the gospel. And after he unpacks the gospel to them, look at verse 6. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while. Now stop. In what do they rejoice? And what do we rejoice? The gospel, the work of Christ. What God has done through his son to save sinners like us. We rejoice in that. Does that ever end? Does that hope in Christ ever end? Is it based upon circumstances that we go through in life? No. It is enduring. It is a promise of God. And so he says, in this you rejoice, in this gospel. Though now, this is verse 6, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your what? Your faith, more precious than gold, this faith is described, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Speaking of faith again, he said, may be found to result in praise 
and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What brings him praise and honor and glory? Faith. The same faith that he bestows on us, the same gift of faith that he gives, that as we exercise that faith in him, he receives glory. That he is glorified in that. Faith. Trusting. And if you go through deep, dark valleys, nothing else makes sense anyway. I think it's designed by God that way. And when we look around and there is no hope anywhere else, we look around and say, nothing here is going to help me. There is nothing here going to get me through this. But I am reminded of one who has promised that he will never leave me nor forsake me. I'm promised of one who laid down his very life for me. So in that deep, dark valley, hope springs up. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 73. Psalm 73, and I think this is a good one to flip to. I'm not just going to read it. I'm going to have you turn there. Psalm 73. Verses 25 and 26 we'll read. Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. The psalmist writes, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Look at verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I don't know if you mark up your Bible, but that's a good one to mark up. That's a good one to have on hand. To be reminded of that as our mind gets distracted and it gets pulled into by emotion one way or another to go back and be centered on, it's God who is the strength of my heart. That though I feel like my heart is failing, God is my strength. He is the one that will help me to endure Flip over a few pages to the right, Psalm 86. Talking about glorifying God in grief. Do you know there's, Psalm 86, do you know there's always something to be thankful for even when we are suffering? You know, it's a perspective change. That's why Peter started off with the gospel. He knew the people were suffering and said, let me remind you of the gospel. Something you can rejoice in. Something you can be thankful at all times for, regardless of what's going on. In Psalm 86, verse 12, we see that God is glorified by our thanksgiving. Verse 12, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. How is that done in the midst of grief? How are we to turn to God and pray something like that? I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Again, it goes back to faith, the same faith God has given us. That saving faith would lead us back to him when nothing else makes sense, that God, I know your glory is your goodness. 
And because of that, though it does not make sense in this present circumstance, God, I thank you because you are good. Those are hard words to pray when you're suffering. But they are words that bring glory to God. That his children in the midst of difficult times, tragic times, in the midst of heartbreak and suffering, that they would lift their voices up to him and say, Oh God, I give you thanks, for you are good. I'm going to close this morning with 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It's a way that Paul is praying for those in Thessalonica. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Paul writes, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know how to pray for one another? There's a great prayer written out for us. A prayer that we could pray for one another. A prayer that we could even ask God to help us in. This faith that he has given us, that he'd give us his power to live it out. That he'd give us the ability to turn to him at all times in the midst of grief. That he would be glorified in us and us in him. That in the times of sorrow, our eyes would be lifted up to the heavens and that he would continue to be the joy of our salvation and the strength that we constantly need. Let's pray together. Father, as we go through many seasons in this life, seasons that you have ordained, yet seasons that Father, we respond with many times in surprise, though we know we should not be surprised at the fiery trials when they come upon us. We are. Lord, in our flesh, we enjoy the good times, but we flee from anything that would be difficult and challenging, anything that would cause pain, and yet, God, you allow these things in our lives God, these times when nothing makes sense around us, we don't have answers, and yet you would gift us with faith to trust in you through it. That though we don't know what the future would hold, what is going to come out of that tragedy, that pain, that we know you give us faith, that we can glorify you in the midst of it. Father, I pray now that you would strengthen us in that. That by dwelling upon the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would be reminded of the great hope that we have. That we be reminded of the love that you have demonstrated for us. That we would be always mindful that you are a God who is always with us. You are a God who is near Father, we thank you that you are a God who is complete in himself. 
We are thankful that you are a God whose glory is not dependent upon us. You are perfect in every way. Oh God, would you help us to praise you and honor you, to glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray.